0: Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, host of Live at the Lord Town. For season four, we continue our focus on art and activism. Why do off-Broadway artists uplift certain causes, and how do those causes make them the artists they are today? And while we gather virtually, we'd like to recognize that we occupy land stolen from Indigenous people. Join us in acknowledging this history and consider our role in reconciliation, decolonization, and allyship. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Live with the Lortel. My name is Eric Ostro. I'm one of the co-hosts for the evening. I'd like to bring on my co-host and my dearest friend, Joy D. Michelle. Joy.
1: Hello, Eric. Hello, oh, my
0: darling.
1: Hello, hello. You're, you're I
0: beautiful as always.
1: Thank you so much.
0: All right. Well, let's bring on. I'm really excited for our guest. So let's bring on our guest, Larissa Fasthorse, is an award-winning writer and. through MacArthur Fellow. Her satirical comedy, The Thanksgiving Play, was one of the top ten most produced plays in America. She is the first Native American playwright in the history of American theater on that list. In spring of 2023, The Thanksgiving Play will make its debut on Broadway, making her the first female Native American playwright ever produced on Broadway. In 2019, Larissa re-entered film and television by co-creating a series at Freeform. Since then, she has set up projects with Disney Channel, NBC, DreamWorks, and is writing a series for Apple Plus, as well as adapting three beloved Broadway musicals. Please welcome the prolific and very talented Larissa Fasthorse. Welcome.
2: Hi, thanks for having me. It's so oh, great thank you, you so
0: much. We're so honored to have you. So how are you?
2: I'm good. I'm really excited to talk to you all. It's been uh, we've been talking about this for a while, so I'm glad it worked out. We yeah,
0: we are get too together. I just kind of want to start right off. I mean, we have so much to talk about in the mm-hmm. hour, and it goes by so quickly. I truly believe that so many things, everything starts where with where you grew up and what were your influences artistically, and you know what did you get from the community that you grew up in. Mm.
2: Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. a <laughs> long, uh, long yes. question. Everything about who you are and where you came from. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I grew up in South Dakota, and that's where my people are from. I'm Lakota. I'm Sichangu, Lakota, which is uh, my tribe, my nation, which is currently based in South Dakota, although originally the Lakota Nation's covered like what's now at least five states. But our reservation is there. And um, I actually grew up off the reservation. We're in a border town until I was in kindergarten. And then my parents moved to the capital, which is Pier. And that did have a huge influence on me in many ways. It's funny because you know talking to people here, you know, it sounds ridiculous. But where I'm from, Pier was like the big city. It's 13,000 right. people. But, you know, it was a change from like reservation life or rural life to city life because it was the, also the capital of the state. So it's a very different atmosphere, I would say. And it really started me, I think, on the road. My parents were very into the arts just on their own as well. But it being there really gave me access to seeing arts, seeing performing arts in a way that, I didn't have before that and it really changed my whole trajectory. It also is a place that I got to start taking ballet because my first career was as a ballet dancer and I started in pier and had access to you know different kinds of arts there that I wouldn't have elsewhere which again sounds crazy in a town of 13,000 people it's like I mean now I mean if we look back they're pretty you know it's very much amateur work, mostly, although we had like a touring season that would come through, uh, you know, in our very small little theater, but it was constant. It was constant artistic experience. And so i uh that's, that's where it all came from. And that's where it all started. Our community theater, even though I wasn't a theater girl, I wasn't in theater. I worked the concession stands. So... It's funny because I I don't consider myself a theater person for a long time, but I was at every show because I was working in sessions for my (laughs) friends who were all in theater. So I saw tons of shows over and over and over again, and that certainly has an effect on you, whether you realize it or not.
0: So if you don't want me asking, what are your parents' ancestry? And I know where you grew up, but your father and your mother... Can you tell me a little bit about their backgrounds and, and what that influence was on you?
2: I actually have a hunka family, which means um, like an, uh, in, in Western would be called an adopted family. So right. biologically. Can you repeat what that's called again? Hunka. Okay. Um, hunka, uh, if you going to say correctly. Biologically, my father is Lakota and my mother is white, mostly Norwegian. But then my hunka family, they're both white. They're uh, German actually. And so my dad was actually first generation here. His parents were German-Russian and fled Crimea. So he's the first generation here. So I, I grew up in this interesting kind of mix of my parents were very careful to make sure I could start to have Lakota culture in my life and Lakota right. role models and elders. So I always had a lot of Lakota influence and leadership and guidance. But at the same time, I had my parents who were, you know, coming from a white World <laughs> and then, right. and to me, I've always said what they gave me. I think what I got through that was being what I call now I'm a translator, right? And that's why I work well and I'm I can work in commercial theater and I can work in large theaters and such because I'm a I'm a translator from Lakota culture to white culture, which is you know let's be honest, ninety percent of still our theater going audience is white. Yeah, and so I think that's the role I've been given is to be able to translate the experience of being a contemporary Indigenous person to a white audience. And I think that's really what my parents gave me for sure.
0: Your Honka parents were the ones that raised you after a certain age,
2: isn't that right? Yeah, since I was a year old. So yeah, we're way back.
1: (laughs) So being in South Dakota, did you go to public school there? So were you raised with the American mis-teachings of Native American culture mashing up against your true knowledge of your culture?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was very different when I was growing up. Yeah, I did go to public school. There really wasn't any other choice. There was one Catholic school for, I think, grade school, but that was it. And everything else, is there's just the one school. There's a school. <laughs> so in a small town like that, um, we all go to the same one. It was very different when I was growing up. And we took Native American history in grade school. So everybody did. It was part of, So when we started history, Of South Dakota, you started with actually pre the Lakota people with the Mandans, the Rikaras, and the the cultures that were there before my people came. And then we went through all of that and continued into then South Dakota history from settler time forward. So we always had that. I was also really fortunate that I was coming around in an era called the um, Age of Reconciliation for South Dakota. This governor tragically died in office, Governor George Mickelson. He, He died in a plane crash. He was really pushing reconciliation between the state and the native people. So, I've said many times, like, we didn't have Thanksgiving pageants you know a lot of these things that are in my plays I'd never heard of before we never had those kinds of things with like native people and pilgrims and all that business I remember going to a lot of events as school kids at the capitol building that were between the tribes and the state government and trying to reconcile and reclaim and and really have a pretty incredible experience of making sure that we were always heard and we're always a part of everything every um official you know state-sanctioned thing that happened, where I grew up, always had opened with Lakota prayer and Lakota ceremony before we had then Christian prayer and, you know, whatever official thing was happening. Mm. So, I grew up with it very present in everything. I think it's a little different now, unfortunately. the time when I was growing up, the state government was really placing an importance on making sure that everybody knew Lakota culture and history. Everybody knew how to, you know, do different ceremonies, how to be respectful of Lakota culture. So, it was very much always there. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. Is.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of the name Fast Horse, which fascinates me, and the fact that the names change.
2: Yeah. So uh, originally Lakota people, we didn't have surnames first off, and then your name changed throughout your life. So you may be given a name as a baby and maybe already as a toddler, as you started, you know, showing your personality, it Mm -hmm. might change and it would continue to change all through your life as your life changed or... For instance, like crazy horses, it was very common to give a name. So, crazy horse was actually crazy horse the third, right? So, his grandfather's name, crazy horse, his father's name, crazy horse. And at one point, his father felt that he's a medicine man and he had so much, I don't know, acclaim for his name that it was time to pass that name on to someone else. And he gave it to his son. And then he wanted to make himself less. So, from then on, he called himself worm. So, he could be like very low, like the low ground low. And then later, they always called him Worm, Father of Crazy Horse. So it became a very elevated name again. So a lot of our names are about, like, not just ourselves, but, like, our relationships to our families and things. According to one of my cousins who did a bunch of genealogical study you know through records and things he said that they found that the first time they saw our family name Fast Horse on the rolls was in like the 1730s I want to say and it was a government role of course you yeah, know we didn't write we didn't have written language and so it was a military role and they'd written us down and what they do then since we didn't have surnames is of course <laughs> typically Americans would look around and say look at a family and say oh that guy always seems to be the patriarch. So whatever his name was, they would make our into our surname, and then we'd all be named with them. That is our surname, which is you know typically American. Pick the guy and make everybody be named after him. What he said that he found was that our first ancestor that was written down was a gentleman whose name in Lakota was "He who steals horses fast and gets away with it," <laughs> and so because he'd stolen a bunch of horses from the military. Right. So they took, like, pieces of that. They knew the word fast and "horse," and they stuck that together and put it down in English. And from then on, that was our surname. Wow. Kind of (laughs) wild. That is very fascinating.
0: It's so fascinating. I mean, I have so many more questions about (laughs) it. But, I mean, researching you over the past week, I've just found, I mean, so much information. And I've just gotten so curious about that time.
1: In this bio that we just Mm -hmm. shared, there are so many firsts. You're the first Native American woman to do this and this and this and this, and now here on Broadway and doing film and television. That's amazing and wonderful to be the first, but it's also so sad that in this day and age that it's just now the first. Do you feel any weight on your shoulders in terms of like representing culture And moving forward, or are you able to walk through and say, this is my journey, or are you feeling like you're carrying a lot of people with you?
2: Ooh, wow, yeah. I try to always say I'm the first known, right? Because Mm -hmm. for a ton of reasons of, of, of colonization, like, I'm sure there were other Native American women, but for all so many reasons we could go into for different, you know, you know, nations and and such and the relationships they didn't identify that way or they'd lost that identity or they didn't feel they could claim that identity for anymore. I, in fact, I assume I'm not the first, but I'm the first known that is openly indigenous and and safe and comfortable to be that because it it wasn't safe. We have to remember that we didn't become citizens of this country until 1924. So, you know, we were not even people here and we didn't get the right to vote until decades, decades after the 60s, I think. We're still very new to this country in general. And so when you think about that, And then think about that the last known Native American and only known Native American playwright on Broadway was Lynn Riggs, and that he was on Broadway in the 20s and 30s. That's really incredible, you know, that as a Native American man, he had several plays on Broadway. Unfortunately, he's the last. And so it's been since like the late 30s, early 40s, since the last Native American play that we know of was on Broadway. It's one of those things where I'm always like, oh, that's horrible. I'm trying to embrace the good, but I think we need to hear that. You know, why does it take, you know, 90 years for the next Native American playwright to be on Broadway? Also, just to be clear, though, Lynn Riggs also, uh, Green Grow the Lilacs was what Oklahoma, the Book of Oklahoma was based on, and he was not credited as a writer, unfortunately. So although people now do give him some credit, he was not not credited all those years. And so if you look back at Green Grow the Lilacs, his play, you can see like the character names are the same, you know, the setting, the story is, is almost identical. And in fact, there's even dialogue that is the same. And it's really unfortunate that he isn't credited with that, just my little spiel. Thank you for <laughs> lifting his name in, in
1: that space, thank you. Yeah, Native
2: it's American. important. It, it's interesting how many times I look at lists of like Native American playwrights on Broadway and there, people say there have never been any. And he was, you know, an enrolled member of his tribe, you know, lived in Oklahoma with his people. So I can't ask him. He's long gone. (laughs) So I can't ask him anything. It is hard. I will say it's hard. I feel an incredible amount of pressure. Mostly because, you know, when you are the only one in 90 years and the first, you know, female that we know of, it is, it's, I feel so much pressure to make sure I don't screw it up. You know, like, I want to make sure the door is really open for people coming past me, which is actually a super self-centered way of looking at things. But it's true. Like, I just don't want to be the one that, like, you know. Makes this a terrible experience, or has an incredible failure of a play, or you know, whatever. I, it is a lot of pressure, and. And I also, all the theaters I work with, including now Second Stage and The Hayes, we do a lot of work in Indigenous community and uplifting other Native artists and bringing other Native artists into the run of my show and Native community into the show and different things. So I also want to make sure that that experience goes really well, so that when we have all these other folks coming into the theater, that they have an incredible experience and that it's helpful to them and useful. So all the programming that we're doing together, you know, is wonderful. It also, though, adds some pressure because I feel like this host of, of a house that isn't mine you know and so i am always anxious to make sure it goes well for everybody you know that it goes well for second stage and and then it goes well for the native people so that they continue to have a relationship long after my play is done
0: and they continue to come to the theater yeah i mean as it. people that want to come to the theater and watch you know we've been talking a little bit about your development as an artist but there's also a very big political side to your work that you've talked about you've said that your goal is to infiltrate white establishments, and maybe that's another factor that led you to the theater. There's a big political part in your writing. Mm -hmm. and I mean, in the past few years, we've been going through so much political mishigas. That's a word that I use. Um, (laughs) I would love to get your point of view about where you're getting your ideas for your plays and where the politics come into it and where it plays.
2: So one thing that I think a lot of people in this country don't understand is that I am an enrolled citizen of of a sovereign nation. And then my second citizenship is with the United States, which is the conquering nation that we are in treaty with. So I have dual citizenship with two nations. So my existence is political, right? We aren't, Native people aren't, just a race or a culture or ethnicity, we are actually independent political nations in a treaty designated relationship with the United States. So everything about my existence is political. Um, just, just there's there's no separating those things. And so you know that that's always there in the Lack of understanding about that in this country is, is pretty deep. <laughs> so um, there's a lot of, you know, we could spend probably the rest of my career just writing about that. And that would be, <laughs> I'd still have people being like, Whoa, I had no idea. I didn't understand that. So, you know, just everything I say is coming from a political frame, right? Because of of the way we are existing in a within a, a nation within a conquering nation. That said, then there's also you know just everyday life, which is being a playwright, being you know being the first, often being the only, you know as the first Native American female to have an off-Broadway play at um, one of the major houses at Playwrights Horizons, you know, and having no one else to talk to about these things and having no one else having experienced these things. In the way I have, there's endless material, which is like where the Thanksgiving play came from very clearly. I'm also very aware that not all, but a good amount of the folks I'm talking to in a typical white theater crowd tend to be a little, you know, tend to be all in sort of what that are coming to my plays, I should say, tend to be a little more to the left, tend to sort of fall into one similar bucket. So for me, it's really about, okay, well, who are those people? And What is it I encounter with them that I know is a problem? It's problematic, you know, and how can I basically, you know, help them see these things and help them shift things to make themselves even better. Cause I assume that people are coming to theater wanting to, you know, I assume these are good people that want to be better people and not that, you know, you don't come to theater, you aren't a good person, but you know, I'm assuming, I always assume goodwill of folks. And so I figure, you know, the small Pretty ineffective platform I have of theater is a way that I can hopefully change the way people look at things. I would say you should leave my play with more questions than you knew to ask when you came in. I'm hoping that you find out that you didn't even know what the questions were before you came, and now suddenly you have to figure out what those questions are. And I would say I, I hope that that's what happens. And so for me, my political activism through theater is just natural. It's a natural state of my being, but it's also I very much came into theater wanting to change both the field and the audiences. Those are the things I want to do. I wanted to change our field and change the way our field works and the way our field interacts with Indigenous art and artists. But then I also want to
1: change audiences, and I want them to leave the play a little different than they were when they came. In terms of change, so we've gone from not knowing, Mm -hmm. silence, to now knowing, somewhat knowing performative wokeness yeah (laughs) and then in what ways can people take performative wokeness and turn that into actual action like something Mm -hmm. that really means something more than i gave a land acknowledgement today Mm -hmm. you know i think the biggest key to me is that so i think one of the biggest
2: dangers i see with the folks that i encounter in my world which again like i said is pretty you know, narrow world of theater, I'd say the biggest danger I encounter is fear, fear of making a mistake, fear of putting yourself out there, fear of taking a risk, fear of sounding foolish, fear of being wrong. I was talking with a Native woman up in uh, Western Massachusetts recently, and she uses the term reflective allyship, no, reflexive allyship. That's what it is, reflexive allyship. She says, what I need from an ally is it needs to be a reflex. Like you just immediately jump in and correct things. You immediately jump in and say that isn't right. You immediately jump in and take action before you think that it's that It's that obvious to you that something has to be done and you do it. And you're going to screw up then. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to look foolish. You're going to do the wrong thing sometimes. You're going to step on someone's toes sometimes. You're going to get in a fight sometimes. Like things are going to happen. You know, her point is, We need allies to be that immediate, and that's not what I see in most of our field. And then with the folks that I encounter, most people are scared, most people are nervous. They read carefully, read a written land acknowledgement exactly the way it's said, and then center themselves by apologizing for mispronouncing the name of the tribe instead of just learn the freaking name. You know, they they do all these things. As opposed to just like, okay, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to learn it so that I can say with conviction and with strength and with personal knowledge, this is the name of the people whose land I'm on. And I do not just acknowledge it. I I realize that I'm a part of the problem and that I'm living on someone else's land and I'm profiting from blood money and I have to do something about it. And I, I realize it so deeply that I have to tell you about it so that you feel that way too. And that you're inspired to realize whose land you're on and that you need to do something and that reparations have to be paid. And i you know, like that's what it should feel like. And that's what we need people to be doing, not just reading the thing and then feeling good about yourself or bad and then centering yourself by apologizing and making the native people tell you you're okay because you tried you know i need you to actually learn it understand it know the people be able to see those people in your mind and then find out ways that you can pay back
0: do the actual do the actual work
2: Yep, exactly.
0: Right. So it's education. It's doing the research, which I found fascinating this past week. You know, when I had a question about something, then I would go and I would do the actual work about it and (laughs) and look it up. And, you know, I want to know more now. But I I think you're absolutely right about people reading that thing and then mispronouncing the name and then just saying, oh, sorry, I I did that wrong. But, you know, no, you should you should know you know, do your Mm -hmm. research, do your work. It's an easy thing to find out how to pronounce something.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. My big takeaway from what you said, though, is have it in your heart, like live it. Mm -hmm. Really live it. Really Mm -hmm. mean it. Really have a position about it and not just go through the motions of it. I'm glad you said that. (laughs) I'm in many spaces and I can, and it, just does something to my spine when i can tell that someone just quickly went online put in their zip code and mm-hmm. got a name and they're like okay i did the thing and it's like no you're not doing yeah. that. so right. thank you yeah. for that. well and once you get to know like you know like you were just saying um
2: eric you know once you start looking into it i always tell people it's like the matrix right like you gotta take the red pill or the blue pill and once you take the red pill and you start to really understand like the horrific foundation this country is built on. you, You can't go back and it's, but there's also such incredible beauty and such incredible resilience. And, and, you know, we're all still here and, You have to reconcile like you have to go through the painful part of understanding you know the the genocide that this country is built on and that the land that you're on still does belong to these people you have to go through that then though once you can get through that and get through that painful part and think about reparations and think about what you can do to give back the benefits you're going to get from that relationship with those indigenous people that are still around, you know, it's it's pretty incredible. I mean, because we still have all these foreign nations right here, right here in the United States. You can be a part of hundreds of foreign nations and it's really available to you if you come in the right way and with the right heart and with the right intention. Yeah, um, with a good I,
0: objective, right.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it's it's a pretty cool way to live once you, uh, once you get there.
0: I totally agree. I want to talk about the Thanksgiving play.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, it is a play that that is being done all over the country. Yep. I think it is, like I think I read before, it is the number one produced play.
2: Uh, right not now. this season, but this uh, season, it was but uh, last it, season, yeah. It just came out.
0: <laughs> right. okay. well, but still, I mean, that, yeah. that's quite it's an honor longer. that your yeah. your play was the number one produced play of a season okay. is unbelievable. And I, I want to know where where the idea for... I know because I read about it, but (laughs) please tell, I I think many of our our listeners are are young and and theater goers, and I I think that they'd be very interested in the foundation of that play.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm really fortunate. I've been, I'm a Lort writer, like I've been writing for Lort theaters all over the country now for 15 years. I make my living at it. I'm really fortunate, you know, theater has been really good to me. Even with that, I do a lot of commissions. I spend a lot of time with audiences. I write specifically to each audience at each theater. I spend time with their audience and get to know them. So my my commissions have a really good production rate. They get produced. So, you know, that's great. But I noticed (laughs) over time about five years ago that like, you know, these commissions would get produced in that theater, but they wouldn't get produced again. And um, I was only getting the one production. And I started looking around and talking to people and my agent was talking to folks. And the number one reason I got was casting. I was told that my plays were uncastable because they had Native American characters in them. I have one play that has one half Native American character in it and the rest of the folks are whatever you want them to be. They can be anything. And I was told that play was uncastable. I know that's not true. I think we all finally know that's not true. We've got reservation dogs. We've got, um, you know, all these different great, my brain is going blank, but all these amazing Native American shows and movies and things happening right now with all these incredible actors. I think we... We get it now but five six years ago theater still thought that one half native character was impossible to cast so i uh, said okay fine american theater um this is the game we're playing <laughs> then i'm going to keep writing about these issues i'm going to keep writing about the contemporary indigenous experience but i'm going to do it with four white presenting characters in one setting so take that. <laughs> and if you can't produce that, then if, you, if they don't start producing that play, then we know there's another issue, right? It's not really the casting. I keep saying that it's like my most like depressing success because it worked. You know, I wrote for white-looking people and it's you know, it's still like right now this, at this moment, it's playing all over the country in colleges and amateur houses, right? Um, because of the Broadway coming up, there aren't yeah. a lot of professional productions, but there's a few. But it's a lot of schools. I mean, there have to be at least 15 productions going right now around the country, and that's you know several years in. So you know, it's great, but it's also it's it's a little frustrating. You know that I had to do that. Um, other playwrights have had to do that. Playwrights of color have had to do that to kind of break through. The good news is, though, I love the play. I love, it's, it's funny, and that's a big thing. Although it's a satire, and we talk a lot about my politics and, and me trying to change audiences and ask questions and all those things, and it is a satire. But what's really important to me with this play is to also just make it fun. Like, I want it to be fun to go to the theater. I, I, I personally am not a fan of going to the theater and being, like, hit over the head with, like, I don't know, everything I'm doing wrong and everything, you know, all of, I just, I don't like being preached at. I don't like any of that when I go, that's just not what I enjoy at the theater. I go to the theater because I want to have fun. I want to sit with my friends and other people and people I don't even know and bond over like these crazy moments you have in person, which is, you know, why we love theater. So, I made it funny, very, you know, not just satirical, but actually funny, very funny for yeah. everybody. And that's my gift. <laughs> you come to the theater, yeah. you get to laugh <laughs> and have a good time. And, uh, and I love writing jokes. So, you know, that was easy.
0: Yeah, it's a hysterical play. Very, very funny, very satirical and very obviously castable because of that. But because of, of that play, that its success what did you learn from that success? I know it was a little, you know, kick in the ass of, you know, Oh, well that worked that little trick that you did that it worked, but what did you learn from it when you moved on to your next play?
2: It's interesting how much I love writing comedy, and I, I was a little afraid of writing something just so outright comedic. I don't know why. I, I guess I felt like I had to, like, tell people things in some way. Um, <laughs> my other plays tend to be a little darker. I mean, they all have comedy, but they're not, like, straight-up comedies. So, like, my next play at that's going to be at the Mark Taper Forum next summer is a farce I mean it's a it's a straight up farce it's ridiculous there's doors and silliness and you know a lot of really stupid jokes but still satire so it's a satirical farce and it's straight up just silly and ridiculous I have a play that's coming up oh it's really has not been announced yet anyway another one at a big uh, regional theater yeah. okay. uh, main stage that uh is also a comedy and it's it really I guess the Thanksgiving play really gave me such a joy in being in the audience and listening to people laugh and listening to people just have that Fun release and experience together. That now I've really just kind of gone off the deep end with like ridiculous, <laughs> silly funness. And um, you know, this one, like the fake it till you make it at the Mark Taper Forum, is just over the top, goofy in a lot of ways. And yet, it's also you know a
1: satire at the same time. Can you speak to your process? You theater's mm-hmm. been good to you, and so you yeah. and you've been commissioned for a while. So mm-hmm. tell us how for people who are aspiring writers, your mm-hmm. process.
2: Yeah. So um, I have no training of any kind. I, I tried to take a writing class in college and I was sick when they did the placement. And so they put me in a remedial writing. So I've never even had a like basic writing class. So I uh, created my own process, which I think is fairly common. It's really organic. I, For me, writing, the actual typing is the last thing i do i don't outline i when i for instance if i get commissioned with a theater like i said the first thing i do is i have to meet your audiences so i come out i spend time going to shows i stand around the bathroom line i stand around the ticket line i hang out afterwards and listen i just listen to people talk and i ask them about the shows and i just strike up a lot of conversations and get to know people and and what that audience is like and what they like and what they need and and i learn about that area and the local people of that you know the indigenous people etc so i do a lot of like I really look at that space and that place and I look at the actual theaters and I really tailor my work specifically to them, to that audience, to that space, to that land. And I really try to see, you know, what are some things I can bring that are helpful to the audience, to the space, to the land. And then I go home. And I think a lot, <laughs> I think a lot about like, you know, what are some of the issues that came up? What are some things I saw? And I start kicking, I do a ton of research. I'm, I'm really nutty about research. I talk to a lot of people. I interview tons of people. I read things. I, you know, go to museums. I go to events, local events when I can, all kinds of things like that until something starts percolating up that, is a topic that's interesting to me and something that I won't get bored with because, you know, it's going to be several years <laughs> that I'm usually that I'm stuck with this particular topic. So I come up with something that I'm kind of interested in and, and don't have the answers to. And then I just really dive in again with more research specifically on that. And pretty soon a world pops up in my head and then eventually people show up and they start talking. And then I just type as fast as I can, and whatever they say. That part's usually pretty quick. Like in 10 days, I'll, I'll, I'll puke out, a, I call it the puke draft. Um, I just, I don't let myself stop till I get to the end. I, at that point, I don't know what the play's about. I don't know how it ends. I don't know what the point of it is. I just type until they stop talking. And then from there, I take the puke draft and then that's where the dramatist comes in. And that's where I go through. And then I always say, you you, know, you can't fix nothing. You can fix bad, but you can't fix nothing, right? So I take this bad puke draft. I don't even know what it's supposed to be for. And then I the dramatist fixes it you know, okay, what is it I'm trying to get at? What is where do we need the turns? Where do we need to up the action? Where do we need to, you know, have some reveals? Where do we need, you know, things to happen? Where do we need to laugh, etc. And so I, I go through them, you know, and really do a lot of drafts to um, really fine tune it into a good dramatic piece. And then I share it with people. I think the other thing that people are surprised as I, I really share with my work with anybody, you know, we, I love to do readings with and people are always like, "Oh, who do you want in the room?" I'm like, "I don't care. Anybody, everybody, go out on the street. You know, that's who I want to be. You know, that's who we're writing for, right? I mean, a bunch of theater people are fine, but just go out on the street. Invite, literally invite anybody on the street to come in and hear this first draft because that's what I'm writing to. You know, and so I'm very big on making sure as many people as possible come through. And I watch the audience. I never watch the stage. I watch the audience,
1: and I calibrate everything to them. I love that your approach is an act of service because you hear Mm -hmm. so many people say that, oh, I had this story inside of me and it just Uh, had to come out. And your process is, let me see how I can best serve people. And there's a a quote that I've heard someone say, I don't remember who it is, but service to many leads to greatness. Mm -hmm. And you serving people has continued the ball rolling. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the one thing I will say. I have a real, I don't
2: know issue with theater folks sometimes because they the audience coming is giving you the most precious thing they have it's time it's mm-hmm. like they're giving you time of their actual life away from their family away from their children away from making money away from who knows you know sleeping <laughs> you know like all these really fantastic things they could be doing and they, like if they're giving that to you we owe them everything you know like they don't owe us they don't owe us to like pay attention if they need to come here and take a nap take a nap like thank goodness we gave you that space so that you could let down and relax and feel safe enough to nap that's incredible (laughs) like I, I just I get crazy when theater people get all like I don't know like audiences owe them anything audiences don't owe us anything we owe them they're showing they're giving their life to you you owe them and you owe to give them the best experience you can for that moment of their precious time in their life so yeah.
0: You're speaking of which, what's your personal relationship like with ambition now? And have you found that it's changed over the course of your career?
2: Yeah. Oh, shoot. Yeah, it has. I mean, there's certain things. I will be honest. Like, I've been with the same one agent, Jonathan Mills at Paradigm, my entire career. He does everything. He does film, my film, my TV. My I just have one little agent. That's No managers, nobody else. <laughs> because he gets me. He understands me. He knows that... The type of work I do and the people I work with is more important than the money or fame or anything else. I only work with nice people. (laughs) You have to be nice is my number one rule. I don't tolerate not niceness. Um, So you have to be nice. You have to be kind to other people. I'm very particular about the kind of work I do. I, I don't do work about murdered native women. I don't do work where women are empowered through rape. You know, there's things like that, that I just are non-negotiable for me. And so he understands that he understands that there's very specific things. So all of those things, some people would say make me very unambitious <laughs> because I have so many things I won't do. However, at the same time, you know, I did an interview with a manager once and they said, oh my goodness, they're like, no is catnip to hire people who are hiring you yeah. because um, there's so many people that are so desperate for a yes. So the fact that you say no, like, I can get you hired all over town, you know? Right. <laughs> um, right. So there is that. And I am aware of that. I will say though, all that said, you know, when I started with Jonathan, you know, now whatever, 13, 14 years ago, we did say, you know, I, I was already working in Lort theaters on my own. Um, I already sold a couple TV shows on my own. And so we both agreed that I had the possibility of, you know, being in commercial theater and that. I did want to do that, and that was really something I wanted to achieve because it just hadn't been done. So there's certain things like you know I really did want I did want to be on Broadway from the beginning, and um, it was really important to me to get there. And and uh, we've definitely looked at my career and the way I've moved through the Lort world, making sure that you know my non-negotiables are still met personally, but also that was always getting me closer to this side of the world. And now I'm you know got one Broadway show opening, I'm working on my second, and oh, okay. it took a while, but I but I got there. And so, yeah, I mean, there are definitely things I want, but then there's always things that I won't do. So it's kind of a push and pull.
0: I think you're right to say no and to stick to your guns is, you know, is the way to go. So you open next year. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, when? you open or is everything kind of a, uh, is it secretive or? Oh
2: no, it's all online.
1: <laughs> okay,
2: yeah, okay. we, yeah, we open, uh, we started previews in March um, of 2023. I think the first preview is March 23rd. And then we open April 20th. Which I know cause it's the day before my birthday. So <laughs> it's wow. an easy day wow. to remember. <laughs> and then we run in, yeah. And then we run into early June. So yeah, um,
1: That's at the Helen Hayes. So, yeah. Uh, Great theater. We're getting close to time, so I just want to throw something out there before we get there. Mm -hmm. One is your shows are culturally specific. Mm -hmm. So are there any cultural sensitivity specialists out there that you know or have worked with that you'd love to throw out there so that Mm -hmm. when your show is getting done in different places, people know she likes that person. Maybe mm-hmm. they can come work on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a
2: great question. Because um, I, I do have, my um, partner and I have a company, Tidafo and I have a company that we started to do that because so many people were um, struggling to find people. So we helped them find folks. But to be honest, we're really booked up. So there's a lot of folks out there that are doing this kind of work, that are, that are working with folks. I do, though, however, I will say the first thing I tell every theater that's doing my work is that you need to contact your local indigenous people. Like that's where you need to start. You need to talk to the people on whose land you're on and get to know them. Um, you need to start a relationship. And so I always say, start with the people on whose land you're on, because you probably have steps you missed just in existing, like forget my play, just, just in being there. You probably have some steps you've missed. So if you try to jump to having someone come in to help you with the play or, you know, be an advisor or do all these programs or things, but you haven't started with the people on whose land you're on nine out of ten probably 9.9 out of 10 theaters have grievances that they don't even know about with their local indigenous population because they haven't worked with them yet so I always say start there and then from there there are you know tons of people they're actually really easy to find online now that do a lot of work with different indigenous peoples but I also say you should if like my play for instance is a while the Thanksgiving play deals with the Wampanoag people and the and different tribes in that area. So you should always contact someone from that tribe. We, you can't say just like any native works, you know? <laughs> so I, I, myself as a Lakota person, had to have advisors from those tribes that I spoke with that helped me and checked things and went through my references and things to make sure they were right and accurate and representing them the way they want to be represented.
0: Obviously everything had to be correct.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: So you have to go right to the source to to, to make it correct. Yep, yeah. So, in terms of writing for film and TV, and I know you've you've had I know you had a great dance career for a while. We can stay here and talk about that for a while, but I'm much more interested in in uh, the writing you're doing now for film and television. Mm-hmm. And I would love for you to talk about, you know the difference of of writing for theater as opposed to writing for film and TV and you know opening that door to to the culture of of what you're putting out there.
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, it's so different, right? Because, you know, in theater, we own the work and it's mine and I, I own the Thanksgiving play, you know, forever in film and TV. You don't, you're a writer for hire, even when you're the creator of a show, you're the writer for hire. So there's a lot more compromise. And so it's a lot more work to do things properly, to do things the way that matter to me as an indigenous woman. You know, when I, uh, was first doing film and tv way back that's the way i did first before i got into theater i didn't have a team i didn't have an agent i didn't have anything it was just me as a new writer and I was very aware that even though it was my show that I'd sold to them, I'd sold it to them. And at any moment, they can replace me and, and stick some other writer in there and who knows what's going to happen to it. And I don't have any rights over that. So I was always making all these compromises and I was really unhappy with it. And that's when I ended up moving into theater and um, found theater to be much more welcoming and for the kind of work and change I wanted to do. Now that I've gone back to film and TV, you know, it's very different. I have the agency and my team, meaning my, my, my attorney and my agent, um, but I have, you know, all of us all three of us as a team and uh it's so it's very different so i can make demands and as far as how the work is being done and how native people are being represented and making sure that the right consultants are hired and so even though though i can do all that it's still like i I love it i love doing the film and tv work because of the reach it has and the possibilities that you have with it but theater is my my home i mean i was a ballet dancer before as a writer theater is what i love i mean that's where my heart is There's nothing like a live audience to me. I'd rather do 100 shows in a storefront theater than one TV show, to be completely honest. Not that I don't love my TV shows, but it's just different. It's different. And so I I have such a love of theater and that experience as an audience member that that's what feeds me. But I, I do love that I can scale everything up. So I can have, you know, a dozen native characters and I can have, you know, things jumping through time and I can have alternative worlds and alternative histories. That's my show for NBC, it's an alternative history show. You know, I can have all these things that I can't do in theater necessarily just because of the resources and all. So that I love about it. And I, the reach of it of course is incredible. And let's be honest, you know, it gives me insurance, you know, (laughs) playwrights don't get insurance. Yeah, of course. So I get to have health insurance and take care of my family. And so that's kind of awesome. As well. And
0: the wealth of talent out there um, yeah. with Native American uh, artists is, seems to be opening the doors now. I mean, I've, mm-hmm. I've just been seeing it so much more in film and TV, and it just—it's so beautiful to be able to to see these artists working now. Yeah, on good material.
2: Yeah, and creating their own material and being in charge of their material is really yeah. Amazing. That and I know
0: you, your first um, film was fame. Am I right?
2: I was in fame. I was in no fame. The musical. That's what I was in. Um, long right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. So
0: you played, you played the, the ballerina Hillary, <laughs> yes. right?
2: No, uh, she was Iris Kelly then. Um, okay. In the musical but in the version. movie she's Hillary. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And they actually cut her when they brought her to America, they cut her. Cause she was So actually, you were in the
0: musical fame that traveled through Europe.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And she was kind of horrible. She's a, a rich, they had to die, white girl. They dyed my hair blonde. Um, (laughs) Um, And she was uh, kind of pretty prejudiced and awful. So, you know, they cut, they wisely cut her when they came to the States. (laughs) She had like a really small part.
1: (laughs) Wow.
0: What was it? Do you, do you miss performing? Was that a good experience for you Mm. touring through Europe? And you guys became like, uh, you know, the Beatles out there. They, it was a huge success.
2: Yeah, it was. It was crazy. We had groupies that followed us all over the continent. We we were on every, like, you know, The Tonight Show and every, you know, country and um, invited to every opening and club and we're on every, you know, we're everywhere. Yeah, it was pretty wild. It was hugely popular. It was great. I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not built for musical theater. I, I admire so much musical theater artists. Doing the same show hundreds of times, I just couldn't do. Artistically, I really struggled with it. I've been a ballet dancer before that, where you're doing a new ballet every couple months, you know. So it's the first time I've had to do the same show, you know, 450 times in a row. And I really, that's an incredible skill that I think people (laughs) underestimate how hard that is. And what an amazing skill it is to be able to do a show so many times and still bring that incredible energy and artistry to it every time. It's amazing. And I I did not have that discipline and that talent at that time. I I found it very difficult and draining. As popular and great as the experience was, artistically, I really struggled with it because I had never done that before. So that was hard. But I do miss performing a lot. I wish I could do it more. It's been quite a while since I've done it. Well, who knows? Yeah. Doors yeah. open. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Uh,
0: so as we're running out of time, I mean, mm-hmm. um, I have one question from me and one from Joy, but um, mm-hmm. so Larissa, what is your hope for what happens in the theater in the next few years?
2: My hope is, wow, there's so many. My short-term hope would just be that we are able to get rid of the scarcity way of approaching things where we can have one Native artist per season or one person of play of color per season, you know, we're endlessly pitted against black folks, Latinx folks, Asian folks, you know, it was like, Oh, we've got the one, the February, you know, new play slot with the right. person of color. So I think that would be huge. <laughs> if we stop having to, you know, fight for the one slot uh, that we think with abundance, that that American theater thinks abundantly that we can have all of the fantastic new plays by, all of the people of different colors with all of the big casts and that it'll come and it'll happen and that we give it enough time that we program out far enough that we have the time and can build the resources to do it well and do it right and to um, do it without causing harm, to do it with our communities behind us and with us and next to us and in front of us actually would be better. And that we start thinking of our programming and our fundraising very differently in much longer term, because right now we program that, you know we announce in January, February, and we've just got a couple months to suddenly make everything happen and engage in a community and raise the money and do all the things how about we program two years out and have all the time to really raise the right amount of money and really engage actually honestly with the community and not always make engagement follow, but let engagement lead. That would be um,
1: the best, I think. And would change everything. I like that. And my question for you is um, what, if you could say something, we have a lot of young people who listen. Mm-hmm. So if you could give any advice to any young artists, what mm-hmm. would that be? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the thing that I was told as a young writer, for instance,
2: by my first mentor was like, never read any of the books about writing, so just make you write like someone else, you know, so I didn't, I still have it. Um, I have them and my people nicely give them to me and they sit on the shelf. And because I want to honor the gift, but I haven't read them. You know, the best thing you have is you if you're a performer is if you're a writer, if you're, you're whatever it is you do, if you're a designer, your point of view is the only one in the planet in existence ever. And so if you can protect that and make sure that that's what people see, you won't be right for everybody. Nobody is right for everybody. But if you're clear of who you are and what your point of view is, and you're always putting it forward and first, the right people can find you. The people that want that can find you. If you're always shifting and changing and covering it and not sure, they can't find you. But if you say, okay, I'm gonna put this out here, I'm gonna get a ton of no's because that's just true. Nobody's for everybody. I'm going to accept all of these no's. The yeses are going to be the most incredible yeses. Mm -hmm. They're going to be the perfect experience because those people were looking for you, exactly who you are. And it's going to make all the difference in how your career goes. Oh, that was
0: beautifully said. It was. Beautifully ended. Larissa, we're so honored to have had you on this show and to You know, wear your heart on your sleeve and and talk about everything. I'm so excited for next season and for what you have coming up. And not only Broadway, but what you have coming up around the country. That's what I'm really excited about for you. And I wish you everything but love and luck and huge success because it's very well deserved.
1: Thank you. That really means a lot. Thank you. The show at The Taper starts when? It starts next
2: summer, I want to say in August I have, Before that I have my show With Cornerstone Theatre Company in South Dakota with June with We'll be touring South Dakota And then we go to the taper I think we open in August And then the unannounced show in the Midwest And then I come back to New York for um, Peter Pan so. Great
0: Yes <laughs> um, That's our show ladies and gentlemen For our next show Which we recorded on December 5th John, Andrew and I will speak with Warren Carlyle Warren is an Emmy and four-time Tony nominee, as well as a Tony, Drama Desk, and Outer Critics Circle winner. His Broadway directing credits include After Midnight, for which he won a Tony, Chaplin, and Hugh Jackman are Back on Broadway. His Broadway choreography credits include The Music Man, Kiss Me Kate, and Hello Dolly. I look forward to speaking with him about all these shows, as well as Harmony, which he directed and choreographed off-Broadway last season, which will be opening soon on Broadway. More information about these and future guests, as well as how to attend one of our recordings online, can be found on our website, LiveDelortel.com. Thank you for joining us tonight. Stay healthy, be happy, go to the theater. It's open, it's thriving. Good night, Larissa. Good night, Joy. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thanks, friends. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucia Lortel Theater. Live with the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer, yours truly, and associate producer, Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak go-go public relations and special thanks to nancy hervitz alana candy samuel mara levinas carla liriano and ellen chan live at the lortel sound engineer and mixer is brian at abacus entertainment thank you so much for listening